0: Hello out there.
1: Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But The Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McClain. And Flynn, I think we've got a very special episode tonight in a little while. Warren Zanes is going to be on with us. He's the writer of the book, Deliver Me From Nowhere, which is about the making of Nebraska, and I'm really excited about our
0: conversation with him. Oh, it was a it was a fabulous conversation. We really delve into what was going on with Bruce at that time. And and the book is 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 just fantastic. And I really recommend it to everyone who has any any interest in in that era of of Bruce's career. It really does talk about the bridge between the river and Born in the USA. And yeah, some fabulous uh, new little tidbits, actually, as well.
1: Yeah, it's one of the great books ever about anyone's artistic process, much less Bruce's. The one issue I had with Bruce's book, and I know you share this, was that he didn't really go that much into the process of the making of the art. And Warren does that here in great detail. We got a lot of stuff, as you said, on how Nebraska was developed and the eventual release of the tape that we know he carried around in his pocket for several months. And of course, that led into Born in
0: the USA. And
1: it, it really is just a
0: fascinating read. And it goes by pretty quickly. I guess it was just a, that interesting to me that it didn't feel like it was a, a labor to read it. It was it was a very fun and, and I don't want to say breezy, but it was a, wasn't exactly a difficult read
1: it does go down easy and that's what i think a book like this that really is both interesting but written in a way that it keeps your attention and of course we read it pretty quickly because they sent us over a review copy and we had to prep for the interview but i i just from page 1 to the end i i really love the book and we hope that everyone's going to read it and we're going to have a thread on our message board, Brave Talk, which is for our subscribers after the episode airs where we want to hear feedback from people. So if you haven't been and checked out our Patreon page yet, it's patreon.com slash because we'd love for more people to join in that conversation. And it's very exciting and very gratifying for us to have someone like Warren on the show. It's, it's an honor.
0: Yes, it really was. And speaking of our message board, of course, another t- popular topic of discussion is the current tour. And Bruce opened uh, the European leg of, of the tour on Friday night with uh, two shows in Barcelona, Friday and Sunday, and pretty much picked up where he left off, tour debuts of Human Touch on Friday and opened with My Love Will Not Let You Down on Sunday.
1: Yeah, it's good to have the tour debuts. The set remains pretty static. There were four changes from Friday to Sunday, and it seems like right now he has this base material where there will be some changes, but they won't be major. Ramrod in one night, out the next, Johnny 99 in place of pay me my money down, stuff like that. I think mixing up the openers is good because it gives the show a slightly different feel. But right now, this is it, and I think it will be for the foreseeable future.
0: And of course, the performances both nights, I'm i am hearing I didn't we weren't at the shows, but I've heard that they're very strong. They're they're at the top of their game performance wise. And and uh, people I've talked to who I thought would be a little bit down on the show. They loved it. And so that's that's great to hear.
1: Well, and, you know, who really loved it? president and mrs obama because they were having a ball from what we saw and perhaps we can get one or both of them on this show that would be a really cool spot for us
0: yeah that, that would be awesome but i believe uh, president obama had his own uh, podcast a couple years ago so he might not want to compete against himself <laughs> but, that's true but yeah and one well, don't forget about steven spielberg and his wife kate Capshaw. they were also there and yes uh, some videos of them uh, enjoying themselves obviously like like the rest of us do at, at at Springsteen concerts.
1: Yeah. And it, the second show, Tom Hanks was there. So that oh, whole gang that, that hangs okay. out <laughs> together, yeah, Tom and Rita were there. So okay, it's great to see how much fun they're having. And, you know, it really is cool because we're about to discuss with Warren, Bruce struggled through some very hard times. And and now look at the
0: life he has today. It's incredible. And yeah, we discussed a lot of that with Warren when when Bruce knew he'd be hitting the big time. and And he had some concerns about that. Well, I think we've probably hyped this conversation enough, so why don't we just get to it? I'll give you the honor of introducing our guest. Our guest tonight is Warren Zanes, a New York Times bestselling author of Petty, the Biography. He was a founding member of the Del Fuegos and continues to write and record music. He's a Grammy-nominated producer of the PBS series Soundbreaking and was a consulting producer on the Oscar-winning documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. Zane's work has appeared in Rolling Stone and The Oxford American, and he has served as a vice president at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His latest book is Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, obviously focusing on the creation of Springsteen's sixth album. Warren Zanes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for
1: having me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's just a pleasure to have you. We really appreciate it. Very much a thrill. So We were just chatting a little before we started recording officially, and it sounds like you have really interesting tales about the writing of this book, so let's get into it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, You give such great insight into Bruce's artistic process, and I love how you use the recording of Nebraska to delve so deeply into his state of mind at the time. For a fan, it was just a little startling to see the sense of isolation that he was going through that you describe. Did you know from the beginning that that was the route the book would take, or did you develop more of that as you got into researching the record?
2: Yeah, that, well, that's a good, good question. Um, I would say a big part of what compelled me, because it's an undertaking to go book length on a single album that's you know a lot of people would would advise you not to do that uh because there just may not be enough there so it's 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 rare albums that can in a way justify the full book treatment and i always felt nebraska was definitely one of them but i had a lot of questions and most of them were personal in nature so you know one question for me was, why am I so attracted to this? Like, what am I connecting to in this this very dark, uh, essentially hopeless set of <laughs> stories? Uh, what is it about me that's so drawn to this? And what is the, the mystery in here that I feel like hasn't been explained? So there's something compelling. And I feel like the, the permission to go further into it from the angle you speak of came with his memoir. And though Nebraska happens pretty quick in Born to Run. It goes by in a few pages. But then the trip west takes up more space. Right. And he really acknowledges... That when he sits down after John says, you need some professional help, and he sits down and he bursts into tears, he says, that was the beginning of my odyssey. It's like the hinge in the memoir. And I really felt like there was some connection between the making of Nebraska and the breakdown uh, that needed more expertise exploration, and the exploration would help us to understand Nebraska, and that would help me to understand why I was so
0: drawn to it. What I found interesting about talking about the connection between the album Nebraska and the breakdown is that he recorded the album in January of 82, and then he went through the whole year. They worked on technical issues, technical difficulties, getting it onto vinyl. But then he didn't have the breakdown until, um, like, what, 12, 13 months later after he recorded it. Do you think there was a reason or what what reason do you think that that happened? I, I, I just think the the human
2: predicament is such. You're talking about, uh, you know, what I what I think he would describe as, you know, traumatic, unresolved childhood trauma. It's been lingering there, you know for many years already. You know, when it surfaces, there's just an inexplicable quality to it. Uh, you know, I think a, he, he has said in, in so many different ways that uh, work, the creative life, the life as a performer kept allowing him to push down something, that was trying to come up. Um, and I just think it's one of these, you know, I always like saying, uh, if you don't deal with your past, your past will deal with you. And I think he was at that impasse and he was ready to deal with his past, uh, but there was that moment where his past started to deal with him. And another name for that is a breakdown.
1: There are so many ways to get into this because you spent what seems to be a significant amount of time talking to him about all these issues, not only the recording of the record, but also the personal issues he went through. I think, should we start at the beginning, which is the writing of Mansion on the Hill, the first song that he did for Nebraska, because he was coming off the river and Mansion on the Hill is a very personal song, obviously dealing, as you were just talking about, with a lot of the issues he had as a child.
2: Yeah, I mean, he, uh, you know, he's, he had said, you know, for many years that it was the time of living with his grandparents. He says that's the childhood that he feels he was exploring in Nebraska. And so I think Mansion on the Hill, in coming first, kind of sets him up in that place of the childhood perspective. You know, he talks about using the glockenspiel to evoke childhood in the way that he felt he heard it in Terence Malick's Badlands. Um, so it's kind of, it'll, it'll situate him there, but it also situates him as, I feel like there's a kind of outsider quality, you know, outside looking in. Not just outside of the mansion, but I feel like the whole picture, you know, the distance from the mansion, even that is seen from the outside. But it establishes that territory as the one he's going into before Nebraska establishes the kind of violence of the place he's going to go into.
0: Well, that's an interesting juxtaposition, talking about his childhood and and violence, those seem to. I, I never got the feeling his childhood was violent. Uh, where where do you think that kind of connection came from?
2: Well, th- this is where when you when you talk about uh, childhood trauma, and I'm a doctor, but I'm not that kind of doctor. Let me say that. <laughs> so uh, I'm you know on some level I'm not clinically. Um, uh, my background isn't clinical but I'm interested in childhood trauma. And there's childhood trauma that has a violence to it that isn't explicit violence. Uh, You know, when he talks about, and he's really good uh, uh, in the memoir talking about um, that there was this kind of benign neglect that he experienced. So in that home, it was a home of unprocessed grief. Uh, And when you're in a place of unprocessed grief, it's a place of tremendous intensity. And the way that his grandparents kind of paid tribute to the daughter they lost was to bring no discipline to this young man who was their charge. So you could say, well, that's not violence, but it is a violence of a kind. The absence of Discipline is the absence of a framework that a young person needs to kind of find themselves. It's, uh, you know, I, I remember my sister telling me about this study of death row inmates. And they were looking for the kind of commonalities among these inmates. And I don't know where she saw this, but it always stuck with me. And she said the number one common feature was tattoos. (laughs) <laughs> the, number two, <laughs> the number two, this was before the great age of tattoos. I would also say that. But the number two common feature was no set bedtimes. Uh, that always just struck with me. Like what every kid wants is no set bedtime, you know? But actually that's not what a kid wants. What a kid wants is to say, damn it, I don't want to go to bed now. And somebody's saying, You have to. That's the framework. That's the structure. And what he describes is grandparents who weren't going to do that, who were going to let him step as late as he wanted, let him watch television whenever he wanted. And he had this power. And when he says it was both the undoing of me and the making of me, he said it all, you know, really powerful. But When we talk about childhood trauma, there can be a tremendous subtlety to it externally in the experiences, but internally, anything but subtle.
1: As you're talking, I hear it playing out on the record because there are these songs, Mansion on the Hill, which we mentioned, My Father's House, which are very personal to him. But then he takes the story of Charles Starkweather, and that's where the violence really comes in. And to inhabit a character like that, As I'm listening to you talk, you have to have that within you, I think, to to tell that story of Charles Starkweather and have it be so really unrelenting. And and that's the feel of the entire record.
2: When he when he becomes Starkweather and, you know, I I think I've got the Dave Marsh quote in the book, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, where, you know, Dave is kind of making a move saying, yeah, I could have been more forthcoming about what was going on with Bruce, Bruce, but at least I said he was presenting himself as this serial murder. And, you know, in effect, implying that shouldn't that have been enough to tell you that something was wrong? But it is an amazing moment when he inhabits that character So instead of setting Starkweather at a distance as this morally corrupt abject figure, he instead steps into the place and the person of this serial murderer. It's just, it's one of the deepest, darkest moments in popular music that I know of and you know, this is another reason this record stuck with me over so many years as a big question mark of why would someone working at the level he was working at, who had always written songs that always had some sliver of redemption, you know, like, like at the end of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, there's a sliver of redemption, you know, just enough I feel like Springsteen had always given it to us. And then here's this record where he's going to make himself into a Charles Stark weather. And he's not going to give us any out. And it's going to go to number three on the charts without any tour or promotion. Like the sheer strangeness of that situation drew me to Nebraska. Nebraska. But what really kept me there was my love for Springsteen as an artist and a songwriter. And it made me want to keep asking repeatedly, why did you do that? Why would you do that? And, you know, I feel very privileged as a writer that I got to sit in in the room with him and ask him. Really directly and keep pushing. And you know, my the part of when you're getting ready to release a book, if you do your own audio book, you read it through, and it's when I've done it, it tends to be a pretty emotional process. Like you find like where the project you just work on is really poking at your own insides, and. It's the passage where I talked to Bruce about Homer's Odyssey, where it was hard to read because I felt like it was the heart of the story and got us to this idea that he, before he could kind of reemerge as the born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen, he had to go into this place of invisibility and anonymity and, uh, it was incredible to sit in the room with him and talk about Nebraska through the lens of Homer's Odyssey and have it end up helping me to know Nebraska better. But but suddenly, Bruce Springsteen was my guide. You know, if if I could pick high points in my own career in music, that's top three if it's not right at the top.
0: All right. Now, when you first, when you open the book, you talk about the night that Bruce came to your, to your gig in in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, and you said Nils came in first and, and then Bruce came in. And what really struck me was you guys didn't say to yourselves, this is the guy who sold out Charlotte Coliseum. This isn't the guy who's selling out show after show after show. This is the guy who made Nebraska. And you, were, you said you were, you were still a teenager at the time. Yeah. So you obviously connected to it from a very early age, at least comparatively speaking, when most kids are listening to Top 40 and, and dance music. You, you, were, you were listening to that.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I already, I already made some mention of my own background. You know, I, I come from Trouble. And um, I guess because I come from trouble uh, listening to an album about people who were in a lot of trouble um, made me feel like I I was with my people, (laughs) you know, uh, but it also it was the it was the in the book, I say, I feel like there were some of us for whom Nebraska was like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1964 and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, a message went out that said, you can do this. And the the garage band era kind of blows up after that. And Nebraska came out and said, you can do this. I just did it, Bruce Springsteen, on a four track cassette recorder and that's everything you need. And, and so it was It was wildly empowering to see an artist who just had his first number one album sending that message out. So we heard this clarion call. We also identified with the trouble of the characters. And I think that was our connection. You know, it, it felt like the most punk rock record that we bought uh, in all our punk rock purchases.
1: You give what is without question the deepest insight into a period that is tremendously fascinating to Springsteen fans. And that's from 1982 to 1984, when not only is Nebraska being recorded, but also he's in the studio in New York city and they're working on the songs that would become born in the USA. And I think probably because you spoke to everyone around him, you elicited more information than we've ever seen on that period. Did anything surprise you as all these players are telling you their story of that period? On the delay in getting Born in USA out and in the decision to finally go with the tape that he was carrying around in his pocket for however many months that became Nebraska.
2: Um, I guess the thing that surprised me was the measure of solitude it's it's I, I'm still I'm still just a, a fan uh've I've had these really great opportunities to be close to some artists that I admired from the time of their debut records and it's that's been. Astounding, but I'm, but I'm still over on the, the fan side of things. And right. so I've got some rather immature notion that the life of the rock star is better than life out here, you know? So despite all I know, I can still drift into that immature vision of the rock star's life and be surprised by isolation. So, yeah, I was, again, surprised by the isolation, the isolation in the time of Nebraska. And then the isolation, like there's that moment in when Chuck Plotkin says, you know, our communication was kind of drying up. I thought maybe he was upset with me or something. You know, people, inner circle people are. There is no inner circle it felt like there's a guy kind of alone. And I think I really came out admiring the way John Landau has been a manager to Bruce uh, because he I felt like he stayed as close as he could but also knew that he couldn't stay too close and he found the right distance. So when, and, and this is my interpretation, when some kind of lifeline was needed, I feel like John was there with one. And, and there was some implicit trust between these two men that Bruce turned to him when he really needed somebody and John was there, but John didn't hover. And that meant that Bruce did go into some pretty isolated periods in that time. And I guess thinking all that through and then the image of the changed body of Bruce Springsteen, the born in the USA, he's like, he's been working out like (sighs) that band in that dressing room. when he walked in like, I don't think we were processing all of this, (laughs) but we were sure as hell aware of it, you know? like something's gone down. Uh, like the guy who made that record that we were so compelled by in Nebraska, now he looks like this. You know, here I am in my 50s and I wrote a book because I'm still trying to figure it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, Landau really comes off amazingly well in your book. And he comments that he really felt that Bruce was having an identity crisis knowing that he was about to be really big and he wasn't prepared for that moment yet. And, and you really go into that as well. The bridge of Nebraska between the river and Born in the USA. It's really incredible to think about because here's a guy who would in 1985 really be one of the biggest rock stars who's ever walked the planet. But in 1982 and 1983, he's trying to reconcile the idea that that might happen. And he's uncomfortable with it.
2: Yeah, and 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 you know that's where there you know there are points in any book where a writer is going to get into a more you know for lack of a better word a speculative process and you know become more of a free range animal and I I just felt you know in, in this book you know obviously it's written into the book but it, it went to to John and then it went to Bruce before I finished it up. And so they, they, they got to see it. And I got to see them seeing it. And that was really important. But the way he plays with the Elvis material in that period before, that's where I got into my more speculative part. I just believed firmly there was some mystical process going on there where he was kind of making context with the 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 heroic story and the tragic story of Elvis Presley that something happened there psychically that needed to happen before he could say okay fuck it
0: let's go big <laughs> all right now still talking about that time frame you you describe a, a situation or when when John when John goes out to LA where Bruce has just bought that house and he's just had that breakdown. And you say that because Bruce had Nebraska or had just released Nebraska, Landau didn't, that gave Bruce some room. I wasn't really sure what you meant by that. Can you, can you explain further? Uh,
2: I mean, I'd have to look exactly at the passage, but I'm imagining what I meant was, you know, a release gives an artist a certain amount of time. Um, To, to, you know, it's funny, people start to wait longer and longer, but, and it, and it changes, you know, but at a certain point, if an artist is, we're talking pre born in the USA, um, you do need to think about how much time there is between records. Um, You can, uh, you can wait too long, you can get something out too quick. And that time has changed. You know, the Beatles records came out fast, and then the multi-tracking changes, and the culture changes. The singer-songwriter movement comes in, and it leads to wider periods of time between records. But you still can't go too long. But I think of what I was probably getting at is, once you put something out, it buys you a little time, and it means you get to have a little creative freedom and allow the next project to, you know, sometimes you have to hunt projects down. Sometimes you have to let, you have time to let them come to you. And he had enough time to like, go, what's going to come to me to be surprised by art in effect.
0: Well, part of that story. And I was thinking that if Landau was a normal manager and Bruce was a normal client, Landau would have been pushing Bruce to go back to the rock material and get that material out but he uh but because he had Nebraska you you allowed him to i guess recover and prepare at the same time
2: yeah well that's another that's another kind of chapter in the what I would call really sophisticated management and i and i tried to convey this in the book is like john knows what john wants as a manager and he trusts in it, but he's also looking at an artist like you got to know when to push. You know, we know the story of him pushing for dancing in the dark and he felt like he could do it in that moment. But right then he couldn't yet say, Bruce, do you see what's on the shelves? Like we're two thirds of the way there, man. He, he couldn't he couldn't do it, and I think this is where uh, you know there are some good managers out there who have the sophistication and understand timing, but a lot of them think too much of the marketplace and not enough of their artist. You know, you can't just think. You know, I, I would say uh, you know Elliot Roberts with Neil Young, um, Elliot was was a great character and. A, and a really smart manager in so many ways. But I think he had an artist that he had to let them make a series of records that the record company and the fans were just baffled by. Uh, arguably too many in a row. <laughs> but maybe he should have looked a little more at the marketplace. It's, it's striking that balance. And I think John was able to go, here's the marketplace Here's the artist. The manager is the nexus between the two. And I don't want to pull that artist too far into the marketplace or else it will affect the art. And
1: that's that's
2: I couldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, these, these guys found each other and they established a rhythm. And
1: I, and I do again. I love that part of the story. I was struck by the support Bruce receives, not only by Landau, but also from the label. Because Al Teller even says, I I don't get this record at all, but I'm going to handle it exactly as you're asking me to. And he somehow knows that he's going to be rewarded later for that. And of course, it totally pays off for him in Columbia. Let me say this.
2: Uh, Al Teller, John Landau, people sometimes have these really black and white visions of like, here's the art and here's the business. And it's like, you're totally wrong. You know, they're overlapping all over the place. And anybody who gets into a recording career, they know they're in a business. But we've got this old art commerce dichotomy that is fanciful and ultimately really distorting. One thing it keeps us from seeing is how guys like Al Teller and John Landau have been in service of the art. Yes, they're working the business side of it, but there are these moments and Al Teller was another character. I love these guys, you know, that, that humility to say, look, I'm not going to claim I understand this record, but (laughs) I'm going to get behind it in an appropriate way. I'm not going to do too much. I'm not going to do too little. And John responds going, I can't ask any more of you. Let's go to work. And then they take Nebraska to the world. Like, I'm sorry, I'm moved by this stuff because that's that's a healthy body at work with the various parts,
1: you know, functioning together. Well, it really is unbelievable from a label standpoint There's really no single, although I guess Atlantic City sort of was a single. They release a video. He doesn't appear in it. And he says no interviews, no tour, nothing. He just puts the record out and lets it speak for itself. And he's wrapped up in it, as you describe in the book, the only time he's ever called Landau and said, where are we on the charts is with Nebraska. You'd think Born in the USA would be getting updates every week when, when it's yeah. selling tens of millions of copies, but he's worried that he has poured his soul into this record and he wants to know that it's being received out there. Yeah. But the the I think the important part
2: is that he's always gotten his information from the audience. And, and not touring behind Nebraska, he's not getting that feedback. Right. Like we we're Obviously, we're all here because this artist has a particular relationship with his fans. You know, he's cultivated something with us. And it's there's a, a tremendous amount of two-way exchange there. That, you know, that's why it's such a, a vibrant community. So when he puts a record out, cuts himself off by not touring from that two-way exchange, he's got no source of information. So suddenly, for the first time, the charts mean something, and he puts in that call. And, you know, well, I don't know what he would have done if the, the news wasn't as good, but on the strength of, you know, his story up to that point, There's Nebraska. I think it peaked at
1: three. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz from Numbut the Brave, and I want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. Distrokid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great, too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you.
0: and listen to something
1: about the Beatles now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now let's let's back up a little bit. You you really talk a lot about the influences on Bruce as he uh, as he was cr- before he was creating this album. You talk, you talked about the band Suicide. You talked about country western. Was there any, was there any, influ- oh, and, and the movie Badlands, that was very, a very big part of it. Were there any that really surprised you in terms of what, what went into that record? Well, I, I, I embedded
2: this in the book that I had my, my pet theory that, um, that Scorsese, um, was was somehow an influence in there, and I was wrong. But it was really helpful for me to see that, you know, uh, Raging Bull, you know, he responds in some detail. He's like, yeah, you know, Raging Bull, I'm, I'm fully aware of it. Uh, it's black and white film stock. I thought there was something to that theory. But in explaining why Raging Bull wasn't an influence, he gave me such a kernel of valuable information saying I was influenced by things that, you know, weren't such big events. And it's almost like intuitively he knew he was making a record that wasn't going to be in the Springsteen catalog, a big event. And he was, he was looking at things that mattered over time. But it's, it's almost like a prophetic Kind of capacity, but you know that was really interesting to me, and I, so I tried to cook the process into the book of how I was finding my answers, and that meant me being wrong, and I carried that raging bull theory quite some distance, <laughs> I'll tell you, and uh, but I was happy with where it took me. Like you know, it's just like making documentaries; you you, you write up a, a, a treatment for a documentary, and the process of making the film is what you need to show you how wrong your treatment is. Um, You know, like, so you just stay loose and stuff. But I think the biggest, it's not so much a surprise, but one of the big points is I think this is the record where, where Springsteen comes into a bigger view of himself and his place in the world. And One reflection of that is the influences. And you mentioned country and Western and suicide. Well, both are associated with music. The biggest influences were not coming from music. You know, it's Terrence Malick's Badlands. It's Flannery O'Connor's short stories. And so suddenly we see this songwriter who's thinking about his art, not in relation to the art he's practicing, but the wider world of art. And that's where I feel like Springsteen is, is moving into a part of his career where he can see himself in through a literary lens. He can see himself as a kind of visual artist and all of this
1: rightly. People debate the influence of any record that is put out into the world. This one, you speak to quite a number of artists, Roseanne Cash, Scott Kempner, the power of this record on other singer-songwriters is perhaps unparalleled. Do you think that in many ways that's because they're pulling out of this record sort of what he pulled out of Suicide's Frankie Teardrops?
2: Oh, that that's a good question. Um, uh, I don't I don't know I actually I like your question more than that um it's good enough that I don't almost don't even want to answer it. I just want to let the question <laughs> linger. Well, thank you. <laughs> because uh, that would be hard to to say. Um Frankie Teardrop was was shocking. Uh it's or it is is shocking. Um, you know, the other day I went to my phone I went. Alexa, play Frankie Teardrop. <laughs> and Alexa had nothing for me. You know, that's, that's Frankie Teardrop can only live in certain worlds because it's so terrifying. Um,
1: yeah, I listened to it this morning. I was like, Bruce is a sick bastard <laughs> that he yeah. was so influential
2: on him. Yeah, I just think it's like what it does is say music can go this far. And Springsteen's asking that question at the time, how far can music go? I've got things inside of me that feel like they're beyond where I've gone so far. And Suicide's saying, well, you can go farther. Uh, But I think the other singer-songwriters, you know, what are people responding to? I think different different artists are responding to different things. But uh, one is you can make a fully conceived record uh, that's very, very raw and it will feel complete if the songs are strong enough. So there's something about Nebraska as a record that tells us uh, about how much you can, um, I was going to say get away with, but it's not about getting away with, but, you know, how little You need production when the songs are as strong as that. Like, I think a lot of singer-songwriters want to know that. Like, that it's the song that's the spine. And if the spine is strong enough, you don't need to worry about the production. You know, so many people have seen their records get all fucked up because of production. (laughs) And so Nebraska's there going like, it can be this raw. Just keep focusing on your songs. That was galvanizing. uh, But also that literary character of the songs, you know, think, think like a short story writer, think about settings, think about characters, think about conflict, think about rising action and falling action. Think about these things that novelists and short story writers and people writing novellas think about, and your
0: songs will get better. I think that was empowering. All right. It's interesting what you, you were saying, because in, in your book, you, when you talk about why the songs did not work with the band, and I, and I think the quote you had was that because the characters themselves got lost. And so that, that's very, you know, we we've been debating Electric Nebraska for 40 years. <laughs> and, uh-huh. the, the, you know, that, that's as much of a definitive answer that we have ever gotten as to why that material, why Bruce didn't feel that material works with the band.
2: Yeah, well, th- this is why it, in the, the world of interviews, you can't do much better than a Bruce Springsteen. I mean, because look at that. I lost my characters. You couldn't get much more economical, but when he responded (laughs) in that way, I was like, I knew he'd just given me a little gold nugget. It explains so much.
1: Yeah. That was one of the quotes I actually pulled out. His exact words were every step I took in trying to make it better. I lost my people. He doesn't even say characters. He says people. And my people. Yeah, my people. He is inhabiting these people and he cannot access them anymore. And therefore the songs didn't work. That's what I took away from what he was saying there.
2: Yeah, which is a totally different that's a songwriter's mindset. You can imagine that scene in the studio, and you know, people going like, This shit's working. And he's just thinking from a completely different perspective. But that idea of a songwriter taking such care of the characters in what is a work of fiction is really moving to me.
0: Yeah, but it it worked quite well with uh, born in the USA, the song and and working on the highway, uh, which obviously was child bride when it was recorded with, for Nebraska. So there's a little bit like, I guess some worked and some didn't.
2: Uh, Yeah. Uh, um, And and I also that was another great moment for me when he was saying, you know, I wished I'd I'd left the Nebraska born in the USA on Nebraska and, and have it show up in both places. And I think that's that's 2020 hindsight because he's you know, he's seeing Ronald Reagan misunderstand the song and. Obviously, if it if it been Reagan and others, but if if had put it on Nebraska, it would be harder to misunderstand. You know, the mood is so different. But this is a this is an incredible thing uh, about, you know, if you take a a clip of film, let's just say it's a it's, you know, a woman's walking out of an office building to her car. And no sound to it. You know, you could put the kind of horror movie soundtrack behind it. And something terrible is going to happen. You can do a sweet, you know, all major chords, strings. And it's like, oh, she's going to, she's going to be engaged. Same exact (laughs) clip. You know, music is the same. You take a set of lyrics and you position it through the music. And sometimes you want the music to reinforce the meaning, and sometimes you want it in tension. I mean, a tension between them. So, you know, Hungry Heart is just one of, you know, so many good examples. Those first lines are just so dark, but the music is telling us to go to the dance floor. And to me, that's like a productive tension. And the Born in the USA version of Born in the USA plays with that tension. And I think it does it for good reason because, you know, we live in a country that's got that tension. You know, we're we're having parades down main streets on July 4th that are very troubled main streets. And, you know, the two things coexist and we can only understand our country by looking at that tension. So I think Springsteen plays with it productively at many points. But that wasn't the point of Nebraska. Nebraska wasn't about creating that kind of hungry heart tension between the lyric and the music. It was about having the music working in concert with those lyrics so that we could really go into the worlds of those characters.
1: Bruce told Kurt Loder in 1984 that Nebraska is about American isolationism. What happens to people when they're alienating from their friends, their community, and their jobs? And that I think applies even more today. So many people are isolated, and there's really been a breakdown in civil society in many ways. Don't you think that's a big reason this album retains so much power and is so relevant in 2023? Yeah. Well, I feel like I, isolation
2: is. I, I agree with you that it's uh, it's ascendant, um, but it's also a perennial problem in both in, in the lives of individuals and in the lives of societies. Um, I think uh, the look into isolation, and I try to do this in the book, uh, I think there's a resonance today with Nebraska. I don't think this is just like a story about something that happened back in 1982. I think it's about something that was made in 1982 that can definitely help us to look at the worlds we live in in 2023. And yes, isolation is a part of it. Like isolation is, you know, it's it's funny, you've also got solitude. And, you know, if we look at them from a distance, let's say in the life of an individual, if we look at it from a distance, solitude and isolation look pretty much the same. But I would argue that there's a necessary differentiation between the terms like isolation is dangerous. Solitude can be spiritual. Uh, But I feel like uh, isolation, the way I think of it is cut off. You know, it's almost like those uh, invisible umbilical cords that like Springsteen said to Kurt Loder that tie us to institutions of family, uh you know institutions of community um institutions of you know learning formal and informal when they, when they all get cut off and that kind of isolation happens uh pretty soon it goes from being a, an individual liability to a community liability and here we are in you know 1982 the personal computer was the man of the year uh, on Time Magazine, same year Nebraska comes out, like the first uh, max, I can't remember what year they came, but it was a few years after. So Nebraska is right at the edge of this shit storm that's coming, uh, this technology that's going to get us by ourselves and give us way too many opportunities for increased isolation. And that, uh, that's why I think there's this strange prophetic element to Nebraska that's among the many reasons that it's as enduring as it is. Because it, it's hard to come up with easy answers for isolation, particularly like with things like social media that tell us lies about being connected. You know, it's it's it's. We haven't seen the last of this issue, and which means <laughs> I think they're, they're going to sell a few more copies of Nebraska. I hope, I
0: that,
1: hope so. that's, <laughs> that's one of my favorite points that you make in the book, what you were just talking about. You speak of the Sony Walkman, and when I was a teenager, I think you and I are about the same age. When the Walkman came out, I was like, I got to have one of those things and I never really thought about it, but yes, the act of us all putting headphones on and listening to music turned it into a singular thing, as opposed to where in the past, someone playing a radio out loud was experienced by perhaps groups of people. And and I thought that that was just an incredible point you made in explaining not only the record, but also the time that it was happening.
2: Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it's when when you when you really start to look at it, it becomes uh, it becomes kind of chilling. Um, You know, I've got my sons are eighteen and twenty, and uh, some part of me doesn't want to get the name of them right. But the the earpods uh, ear is it earpods AirPods AirPods. It's a terrible name. I can never get it right. (laughs) But you're sitting in the car, the three of you, and I have to say. Take those things out. Like, let's listen to something together. And we've got good communication. Like, I feel very connected to my sons. I feel like I've done a lot of things. I've fucked up a lot of things in my life. But uh, parenting, thank God, was pretty intuitive. But that doesn't mean they're not a part of their technological moment. So they've got these things in. I'm like turning up the radio, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like (laughs) it's almost like you're you're going into a cave with some fire, trying to get everybody out. (laughs) But it's a it's a I joke, but it's a real problem. Uh, You know, when you're in a car next to somebody and you're not listening to the same things, who would have ever thought such a thing? Would come into being. So, uh, (laughs) sorry. Once I start to think about parenting, I'm on a completely different road. (laughs) Um, But it was let me let me say this: like, uh, without a a question being um, delivered, I'm going to answer a question that didn't come, just because I feel the need. Like, when I go into a a project like this Nebraska book, um, you know, I, I bring my family with me. You know, so, so my sons participate and it was incredible bringing them into Nebraska. And I, I apologize because the second I start talking about my sons, it chokes me up a little bit. And so I'm, but I'm going to try and muscle through this. Um, Oh, that's entirely. All right. That's okay. This is such a raw recording. And part of what happens, and and I I touch on this in the book, but uh, it's a topic that needs to really be talked about. Is when we get into the digital age of recording, we see music as waveforms. And you know, I was talking to Bob Clearmountain about this, and and you know, he said he really tries to close his eyes because when you see music as waveforms, it means you can fix mistakes that you don't even hear because you see them. And people are inclined to fix things that would be categorized as mistakes. So there's a lot of near-perfect music out there. And as human beings, we crave traces of humanity. So sitting and listening to Nebraska with my sons, this raw, you know, at times pitchy, you know, sometimes wavering tempos. Uh, They're of a generation that has to learn to hear something so human because they're more accustomed to music that's been cleaned up to a really tremendous degree. And I'm not, I got no problem with samplers. I got no problem with looping. I don't even mind perfect time, but give me some traces of humanity. And here I am looking at this record. That's like all humanity, you know, this is a record that it's just like it you feel it's breath on your neck when you're listening to it. And, uh, I knew in bringing that to my sons, I was doing something right as a father. And, you know, it was a valuable part of the project. It's like, it's inevitable that anything I'm working on, um, there's some lesson that i'm learning and there's some lesson that i can bring to my sons
0: and this one
2: felt good
0: what kind of reaction did they have to the album uh and then, you know but the the content the the, the songs what did, what did yeah, they well, feel they
2: about it to, they wanted to talk about the sound um because it is you know it is it's got a it's got a mud to it uh it's got a darkness Uh, to it. Um, And then they wanted to talk about the stories, you know, and the characters. And you have a conversation about, like, unlikable characters. You know, should we identify with an unlikable character? And I would say um, we should. You know, that's part of, like, I think we just don't think about it as much with music as we do with literature. It feels like it's an obvious move to make to see what it's like to conjure sympathy for an unlikable character in literature, but we don't do it as often in music. And here's this record. So that was part of the conversation. And then and then it bleeds into, um, you know, they they kind of want to know oh, uh, what's he like as a man? You know, it was a similar thing with Tom Petty. Like, what's he like as a man? Uh, because they they don't, they know he's someone that a lot of people know about. And the, it's a question that I had, you know, growing up. Like, these people who are larger than life, when you meet them, are they still larger than life? You know, seems like a legitimate question. And, you know... Happily, you can, you know, after doing an interview with Bruce Springsteen, you can go like that that guy, like he found a way through this. Uh, You know, obviously music was a part of it, but, you know, my report, from my very limited experience, like he found a way through this. And when I took them to Graceland the other day and we talked about that again. You know, you're standing there at Elvis's grave and you've just gone through, you know, you've seen the jungle room and you've seen the room with the peacock stained glass and the white piano. And, um, you know, it's (laughs) my older son, like, was listening to Elvis for like a week. I was so psyched about that. (laughs) Uh, But but they've got these questions like, well, how do these people get through or not get through this experience how does it change them and you know nebraska was this really unusual conversation that we got to have about why he did that why he did it them and i think in a way their questions were the same as mine why he do that
1: coming up on five minute news i'm anthony davis Well, as you're talking about being a Graceland and teaching your sons about Elvis, it reminds me of what Bruce would say pretty much every night in 1985 before launching at the Born to Run in reference to Elvis, don't let the best of yourself slip away. And I, it, what I'm hearing as we're talking about Nebraska and everything that he told you, that's really the lesson that he has learned in his life as he's now 73 and really an elder statesman of rock he made it through. A lot of the other guys didn't. And uh, it, that's really, I think, one of the most remarkable parts uh, of his story, that he, he was able to accomplish all of this and build a family. I, I often wonder, what would Bruce Springsteen in 1982, you were at the farm, what would the guy who wrote Nebraska think about the farm that they live on now? You know, the ultimate mansion on the hill. It's, it's really fascinating.
2: Yeah. I felt when, when we went back to the Nebraska house and uh, walked into that room, it was super powerful for me. Uh, I've been thinking about this record for a couple of years and thinking about the, the man who wrote those songs and, you know, a man who was in some trouble in his life. And, you know, most of us have been in trouble at one point or another. And, you know, when he called me from the room to say, Hey, I can take you out here. Um, and I may be getting ahead of the story, but, but, but let me, I'll, I'll say this, you know, uh, when I finished, I, I sent it to John and, you know, we had a conversation that was, you know, one of my treasures, like we had a 90 minute conversation and I will, you know, I'll keep that one close uh, because it, uh, it was just really moving. And then he said, okay, I'm going to send this thing to Bruce Uh, and I'll tell you something about these guys. Uh, they read really fast, <laughs> you know. I've like been <laughs> people in the world of literature, like like two months later. Like, have you gotten to read the book? I'm telling you, this was like next day kind of stuff. So I send it to John. He gets right back. We have that conversation. Then he said, "I'm going to send it to Bruce, and um, I'm not going to tell him anything." You know, I want a cold response from Bruce. I want. I'm not setting it up. I'm just sending it. And, uh, <laughs> Bruce gets back like the next day, you know, John gives him my e- email and, um, and, you know, he said some really nice things and then said, what can I, what can I do for you? And I, and I said, I, I can't find the house. <laughs> I, go- I want to see the house. <laughs> and, uh, Then it was, you know, within a few days he calls, I see an unknown number pop up, he calls. And that was what gives me my last part in the book of us going out to the Nebraska house together. But walking into that room, having spent a couple years thinking about the record, thinking about the man, walking into that room with him, there was, uh, it was heavy. It was really moving to me. And, you know, when he asked me, he just handed me his camera and said, Take my picture. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I haven't even fully processed why that was just such an act of generosity. Um, but, you know, we're standing on the orange shag carpets and, We're kind of just there in the room, Uh, you know, we're in this space of history and um, take my picture and gives me his phone. And I I just take some pictures of him sitting on that chair, he's just smiling. Uh, And
0: um, That is incredible.
2: Yeah, then you're in the moment with the guy, you both know, he's read the book. He knows that I know, I know that he knows. That he was in some trouble in his life in that moment. And you're back there 40 years later. And he's smiling. And all this life has unfolded. The things he was worried he might not find, he found. And that's just like, it's really heavy. And maybe that moment of, hey, take my picture, like just brought it all down. Like, I don't know. And I'll probably give me a couple of years and I'll like figure it out. But for me, it had a real uh, density. And this this Nebraska project was, these are songs without hope. But the act of making it and the life lived after the fact is so filled with hope that like we're in that room with both things. And I I think that's what stirred me, you know. Um, and I think that's also, you know, it's, it's in the book that I'm thinking about these places where things happened and, and how they, they breathe like buildings where records that changed you were made and, uh, going to them. And I don't know, something happens in those spaces. (laughs) I did after I played in the Um, my brother's band in the Del Fuego's, uh, I went back to school and I, and and I started taking art history classes uh, and I got really into looking at cathedrals. (laughs) I was a little obsessed with medieval cathedrals. And one thing they talk about in the the medieval art class is the pilgrimage that goes through France and Spain to Santiago, uh, Santiago de Compostela. And, I ended up getting money from the school and buying a bicycle and following the pilgrimage route from Paris across France, over the Pyrenees, across the top of Spain to Santiago by myself. And it was getting kind of cold. (laughs) But I was going like building to building, living that things happened here. People built these places. When you finally get to Compostela, when you enter into the front of the cathedral, There's a marble column. And pilgrims for a thousand years have put their hand on it. And there's a handprint that goes inches deep into the marble just because of the number of humans who have touched it. And so when you go into that building, you know they've all been in there. You know, for me as a fan, a deep fan of this music, going into a room like the room where Nebraska was made. It's like a pilgrimage site. It, it's really heavy. And when you're going with the guy who made the record there, it's hard not to feel pretty lucky and to also feel like, what a fucking great launch pad. What a great, like last thing to happen in years of sitting in a room by yourself, thinking about a record. Like, that was just some
1: beautiful and heavy stuff. I, I'm a little emotional just thinking about it. It's just such a powerful story you're telling and the time you spent with him. Uh, we just so deeply appreciate you taking the time and being this generous with us to talk about this book. It's, I think every Springsteen fan is going to want to read it. It's, it's really a powerful piece of work.
2: Well, you know, thank you for saying that. And, you know, I feel, uh, I was, you know, I was talking to my mother about this, you know, Harry Belafonte just passed. And, um, uh, I, when I was working at the rock and roll hall of fame in Cleveland, I did a sled belly tribute and I got Harry Belafonte to come out and, um, open up that evening. And, um, I wrote a little thing on Facebook today about it. And I was saying to my mother, like, I, I feel really lucky that I've gotten to meet with some heroes and uh, you know, with, with Bruce, I, I got more than I got with Harry Belafonte, but I got but I got enough that I felt like I gotta put some, a little story out there about this. And I think this is part of like the nonfiction writer, in music, like if you've had uh, the chance, share the story. Uh, you know, and, and I did with that with Harry, and I'll tell, tell you, I asked Springsteen to be at that Lead Belly tribute. Uh, and <laughs> like three months later, I get a card from uh, Rumson, New Jersey. <laughs> uh, and like, I've had no contact with Bruce since he got on stage with us in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it's like, sorry, I couldn't be there to like, I'm paraphrasing. Sorry. I couldn't be there to pay tribute to the great lead belly. I still remember your band. Hope you're doing great. Like no reason to write me a message. Um, You know, but that's the kind of guy he he is like, um, and he extended that in a much bigger way for this. And getting to tell the story about it and getting to recount it in some detail to you here, um, uh, that's a that's a that's a joy for me. And you know, it's also part of it's part of the emotional work, part of the intellectual work, and it's part of the writer's work, I think.
0: Yeah, and and along the same lines, like when I went to the Springsteen exhibit at at the Freehold Museum a few years ago, they had the actual TAC recorder there, and it was just amazing and very powerful to think of the music that that went through it that just had such a huge effect on on me and so many others.
2: Yeah, it's um, th- what's interesting about that re- that relationship is that it's just a recorder there, but it's triggering some world inside you. And if, you know, at the end of the book, I talk about, you know, music in particular, the way we take it in, we take it in over and over and over and over. We keep seeing it in new ways. We keep taking it in over. So there's all this stuff inside of us from the music we love. And then you see an object like that and it just triggers. It's it's like it activates it all. And it seems like it's coming from the recorder. And it is, and it isn't, you know. <laughs> but the material history awakens stuff in us. And, and that's why I like going in the rooms. And that's why my question to Bruce was, where the hell is this house? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I want that house to like reawaken all this stuff in
1: me. Incredible. Just incredible stuff. Thank you so much we really deeply appreciate this and we would love to have you back on the show anytime you want that uh, that's for sure
2: yeah well th- thank you so much and it's like I, I like being part of, uh, of the community too so you know thank you for being like a portal to it a part of it and um, and you know I love these conversations
0: Great. Thank you so much. We, As Hal said, we really appreciate it. And the book is tremendous. Uh, I urge everyone to, to, to pick it up. Uh, it's a very fun read, and I learned a lot. I've, I've, you know, I've I'm kind of uh, read Red Marsh's books and, and, and all the others and, and Bruce's own, but this one shines even more light on that whole mystery. Well, well thank you. Thank you both. Thanks again. Thank you. Once again, that was
1: Warren Zanes, the writer of the wonderful book, Deliver Me From Nowhere, which is about the making of Nebraska that, as I said earlier in the show, was a huge honor for us that he joined us and had that type of conversation. I have to say, when we first decided to do this show, that was the type of conversation I really dreamed of having. So that was, it was
0: amazing. And there was so much to unpack there, and I think we we really need to come back and talk about some of the things that he raised, and and about the book itself. I think there's a lot to talk about to to expand upon, and and maybe connect to other times in, in his career as well. I think uh, there's uh, there's a, several of those in there, so we need to come back and do that.
1: Yeah, we're going to discuss this more in the next episode for sure, because the artistic process, the state of mind that Bruce was in at the time, what it led to as you just said, this really was the gateway. And as we discussed with Warren, it was a man on the verge of perhaps superstardom. And he wasn't ready for that yet. And he stepped into that role. And where it led from there, we know there's a line from 1985 until today. And (laughs) in Barcelona, when he goes to Europe, look at all the Born in the USA songs he's playing. That is it is still such a huge part of his career and always will be so and it all dates back to this period that Warren wrote so eloquently about
0: and i look at the fact that he recorded the song born in the usa on that in that little bedroom just to him him and mike batlin the recording engineer if you want to call it that and then you take that all the way to to tonight in barcelona where he's doing the song with the full band in front of fifty five thousand people chanting along with the with the chorus that's that is an amazing journey that is for sure, yeah,
1: as I was saying you got President Obama standing right there singing along the board in u s a it's it's a crazy, great story and Again, you, you got to be happy for what he has built. Uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of artists, as we know, who have tremendous talent, who think of Kurt Cobain, uh, sadly, and, and some of those people who took their own lives and couldn't deal with it. And to see Bruce where he is today, having read what Warren had discovered during his research on the making of this record, it, it's it, it's very powerful stuff. So we hope people enjoyed that. Again, join us on Brave Talk and we'll be talking about it. And uh, with that, should I wrap things up? Yes, please do. None But The Brave is a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts and produced by Bull Market Entertainment. On Patreon, we're at patreon.com slash On Twitter, we're at
0: Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I want to thank Warren Zanes again for his, for his time. And I'm Flynn McLean, and we'll see you further on October
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes?